Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets and plants that are important to you. If you're listening to this episode of People Are the Enemy on the week of its release, and you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have an excellent Thanksgiving holiday. My family and I will be going to my sister-in-law's house this year. Both my sister-in-law and my wife are incredible cooks, and they will be preparing some wonderful dishes for us, and I'm very much looking forward to eating some great food and spending some quality time with family and friends. Folks, as I just mentioned, you're listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. If this is your first time listening, welcome! I hope you like what you hear. Unlike other podcasts, there are no ads on People Are the Enemy, and there is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show and if you'd like to contribute to it and myself monetarily and get yourself or the reader in your life some fine fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my novels. I'm the author of 10 self-published books that are all currently available worldwide in both digital and paperback formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can find all 10 of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O. L.A. That's how you'll find me on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song. the enemy listeners this is episode 255 of the people are the enemy podcast thank you so much for checking it out thank you for spending time with us our guest today is the freelance film critic and arts administrator sarah lahue now i was first made aware of sarah via our mutual friend rachel from des moines of rachel's chart chat fame now rachel hit me to a tweet from sarah that read quote don't worry darling is no joke one of my favorite movies of the year. This is an open invitation to book me on your podcast or hire me in your publication to discuss why. End quote. Folks, I am no stranger to the polarization the film Don't Worry Darling has caused. And I'm the kind of person who, after being made aware that a movie has divided audiences, I need to see that motion picture as soon as possible. So, I reached out to Sarah and invited her on the show with the proviso that I'll watch Don't Worry Darling if she watches the 1970 Russ Meyer movie Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. The idea being we both watch films we hadn't seen but the other had, so we may then get together and talk about what we liked and or didn't like about these movies. Now, I'm going to warn listeners right now that there may be spoilers. Now, you may not be worried about us spoiling a 50-plus-year-old satirical melodrama, that being Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But I do realize Don't Worry Darling only came out two months ago. And you, dear listener, may not yet have seen it. And you may not want it spoiled. And, And I completely understand. 
So if you don't want either or both of these films spoiled for yourself, I'll recommend that you forward to the Rachel's Chart Chat segment of this program now. Okay, then without any further ado, let's speak now with Sarah LaHue. Hello, Sarah, are you there? I am here, Andy. Hello. Hello. How is your weekend going? It's going really well. I watched some really fun movies in preparation from the, uh, for the podcast today. Uh-huh. I've been really looking forward to chatting with you about this, especially uh, after hearing that lovely introduction um, about my, my open tweet uh, to talk about Don't Worry Darling. Um, I did rewatch Don't Worry Darling this weekend to make sure I still felt the same and that I wouldn't have to recant anything uh, when I went on the show today. And uh, it turns out, still love it. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. I, I too watched the film yesterday and uh, I liked it a lot. I'll tell you. And and I rewatched one of my favorite films, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, today in preparation for us speaking. Now, Sarah, when you and I first spoke about you coming on the podcast to talk about Don't Worry, Darling, one of the first questions I asked you was if you were a big fan of Harry Styles' music. Now, you are not necessarily a fan of Mr. Styles' music, correct? Not so much as I'm not a fan, I am just almost unaware of it. It's as if I've lived in a cave for a while. I'm I'm not exactly uh, the most hip on uh, new music, as you can tell by the phraseology of me being quote-unquote hip on new music, (laughs) Um, but... I, I've never knowingly listened to a Harry Styles song. If you put on a One Direction song, I wouldn't be able to be like, ah, oh, yes, and that one is Harry. I am mostly familiar with him as an actor, as ridiculous as that sounds. Um, he was in Dunkirk, uh, which was a Christopher Nolan movie from a few years back. I thought he was really good in that movie, and I actually really thought he was good in this one, too, uh, which is why it was interesting to see some of the polarization about some of the big choices he was making in the movie. Um, I, I kind of, having seen the movie twice now, um, understand where he was coming from a little bit and will go to bat for him as like Harry Styles colon actor. But no, I don't really know him as a musician very much. I think, I mean, his, his fans seem intense and lovely and I, I, <laughs> live in fear of making them mad. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's doing great. He's got a fan in me. Right on. Very, very good. Very good. Yeah, I know. Like, I think I told you, my wife my wife and daughter had seen Don't Worry Darling just because they're huge Harry Styles fan. They both had, had gone to see him in New York. And uh, they, you know, they're rabid Harry Styles fans. So they were interested in the movie. They did not care for it. <laughs> now, now I, go ahead, yeah. please. I can see why they might not. As, yeah. uh, if they're going for Harry, once the twist comes around, and there is a twist, um, they might not like him as much. Right. Now, a lot of critics seem to find fault in Harry Styles' acting in this movie, and I'd read that Shia LaBeouf was originally cast in the role Harry Styles ultimately played, the, the Jack Cham- Chambers character. Do you think, had Shia LaBeouf played Jack, that the film would have been better, worse, or, or the same? Uh... I would say, knowing what we know now about Shia, uh, with all of his controversy and the, 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 uh, I believe her name is FKA Twigs, his ex-girlfriend, yes. um, yes. who's, you know, been very vocal and outspoken yes. about her treatment within their relationship. I think the movie plays really, really differently, um, with him in the role of, of, you know, this, spoiler alert, um, this men's rights sort of adjacent person who gets 
sort of in this thrall of that mindset, I, I think the movie becomes significantly more gross with Shia in that role. Yeah. Um, I think having someone like Harry Styles coming from like a boy band background and having this, you know, core base of teen girls and young women as, as his fandom. Um, I think the movie plays differently in that respect, just because you have the people like your wife and daughter who are going to seek this movie out because they really like him. And then uh, get the turn that the character is reprehensible. Yes. And it made me it made me go back sort of in my memory of like other musicians that might have appealed to young women taking on this sort of heel role. I'm um, going like back to like Elvis in Jailhouse Rock, where he plays like this anti-hero. Yes. Um great example. That's or like even I mean I don't know how much of a teen girl fandom he had, but Frank Sinatra and the man with the golden arm. Yes. Um, it's it, there's precedent for it, especially when these teen idols want to break out of these um, these pigeonholed roles for them. Even someone as early in his career as Harry Styles is. Also, another vaguely good-ish example um, would be uh, Johnny Depp in um, Crybaby. Though not a musician, I mean the twenty-one the twenty-one Jump Street of it all. Yes, sure. <laughs> um, to work with John Waters. Yes, yeah, it's there, there's a long tradition of it. Um, that was an awfully long-winded answer to, to just no, say that. No, those are, you know what? Been worse you, with Shia, but. You, you pointed to some, some great examples of this happening in the past, and I'm glad you did, because those are, you know, folks will, who haven't seen this or, or have no idea what we're talking about will immediately be able to understand um, the kind of role that that this was for for um, Harry and how different it, it, it positioned him as far as his uh, his public persona. Uh, now, I'd read on the Don't Worry Darling Wikipedia page that Olivia Wilde was originally set to play Florence Pugh's part, and Pugh was to play Olivia Wilde's part, and they traded roles when Wilde decided she wanted a younger couple at the center of the film. Now, after reading this I, and trying to imagine these roles swapped, I don't think that this film would have worked nearly as well. What, what do you think? I completely agree. Um, I hadn't heard that about Olivia Wilde. Yeah, again, this is from the, the wiki page, so who knows if it's true, but I guess it's an interesting thing, whether true or not, to theorize that if, you know, I guess I guess that Olivia Wilde, if she, if, if she was directing it, she had the choice of parts, I suppose, and would, would obviously choose probably the lead role, which was Florence Pugh's role. Yeah, I think the movie would play really, really differently with an older couple, um, and Olivia Wilde's not, quote, like, older by any stretch of the imagination, but older than Florence and Harry Styles would be. I think having a young couple at the center of this really works for what the world building becomes. And knowing that and taking a look at, like, the makeup of Victory, the neighborhood, and Don't Worry Darling, it is a lot of very young couples. And then you get, like, the um, the Gemma Chan and Chris Pine couple, and Nick Kroll, who I thought is actually, like, capital B brilliant in this movie, and Olivia Wilde as the sort the the upper echelon yes. sort of uh, of the neighborhood and the social pecking order, I think that works really, really well. And I think having a sort of mixed demographic where uh, somebody more Olivia's age is 
the lead, um, it might not play as as well, or at least I wouldn't find it personally as affecting. Yeah, I don't. I don't think she'd be as sympathetic. I think you know. Uh, at least that that was my my yeah, my take on it. it. Looking at Florence, she just uh, obviously, as you said, younger, but just a more I suppose more wholesome and kind of innocent than Olivia Wilde appears. At least you know to to the eyes, you know. Absolutely. A, a lot of the negative criticism of "Don't Worry, Darling" seemed to focus on the unoriginality of the core concept of the film. And I didn't feel this way at all. I felt like there were a couple films from the last quarter century that certainly paved the way for Don't Worry Darling's twist, namely The Truman Show and The Matrix, and I'm sure there's been others, but I I could not and didn't predict uh, the surprise twist in Don't Worry Darling when the film suddenly um, goes from the 1950s to modern day. Did you feel Don't Worry Darling was unoriginal? I don't feel like it was wholly unoriginal. Like, I hadn't even made, like, the Truman Show connection until just now, but you're totally right. Um, I think uh, another comparison that I could make it to from the past maybe 20 years or so would be M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. Um, just a bunch of people choosing, and choice being a big question mark within the world of Don't Worry Darling, but choosing uh, to live in this very specific way based on this very specific set of parameters. Um I don't think it was unoriginal. I think it was maybe a little bit derivative, but there's that thing about like, oh, great artists steal. Um, it, you can still have fun riffing on a concept. And I think having this sort of high tech version of that same concept that's been done before um, doesn't really speak to lack of imagination or anything like that. I mean, if it wasn't your cup of tea, like sure, it wasn't your cup of tea, but I think there's more valid criticisms to it than it being slightly derivative or maybe a little bit of a retread. Like, how many times have we seen the same action plot over and over or the same, you know, the same tropes in romance movies or things like that? Yes. You can, you can do things with a new spin on it. And I think this was a, a pretty fun spin. And if people don't like the twist, you don't have to like the twist, but the journey to get to the twist is still pretty interesting to me. Yeah, for sure. I, I was curious about your experience watching it for the first time because you know, I don't know how much how much reading you did about the film prior to to seeing it, or if you'd seen the trailer. But you know, after watching it, I I obviously did some research on my own, and I watched the trailer for it. And nothing is given away concerning the film's twist. Did you did you at all while watching it see the twist coming at all? I didn't see the twist coming. I had seen. I, I go to see a lot of movies, and I had seen the trailer quite a bit. It, it was everywhere, and then I did get swept up in all of the gossip around the time that it premiered at Venice, and the Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles of it all, and Chris Pine's seeming uh, disinterest or maybe outright contempt for the whole press process at Venice, and. I, I did a lot of reading about it, but from the movie itself, from the trailer itself, I should say, the vibe that I got off of it was less like, oh, there's going to be some sort of modern twist to it, and more of that sort of like dark side of suburbia, David Lynchy vibe sure. to it, where it was like, this idyllic neighborhood, but there's something strange happening. Yes. And I think it's a really good misdirect. Absolutely, yeah. I think the, the, the scene in which like Florence Pugh is is 
taking the eggs and cracking them and there's nothing inside, I, that's immediately when I say, oh, geez, something else is going on here and, and we're going to find out what it is. And it's obviously, it, you know, the, the music kind of intoned that it would be, you know, dark and something. Yeah, exactly. I, I got the feeling and I'd use uh, I'd use the, the term Lynchian to describe uh, the vibe that that uh, that the film gave off. I, I think that's a that's a, a great connection that you made there. Um was there anything else that you wanted to say about Don't Worry Darling before we get into uh, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? I just want to say like, that if people have been hesitant to watch it uh, because of any of the gossip that's been surrounding it or uh, thinking that it's bad because, um, you know, there was a certain backlash in the press to it after uh, its premiere check it out because I really do think that within the next maybe year or two, it's going to become ripe for sort of this cultural reevaluation. Yes. And I know that sounds like, no, I mean, it might sound ridiculous. I I don't think it does Sarah. And I, and I'm glad you said that because I actually made a note about it and it'll come up later in our conversation um, because I've made some comparisons to the two films that, that you and I watched over the weekend. Um, and, and that, and I should mention, I'll mention it right now. That's one of them, like beyond the Valley of the dolls uh, similarly um, was not, you know, well received critically at all, though it, it was a quote unquote hit because the budget was so small and it made a lot of money. Uh, similarly, and I have this here, uh, Don't Worry Darling, the budget was $35 million. It's already made $86 million. So again, a hit. Uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, $900,000 to make. This, again, is 1970. I think the equivalent today would be about $3 million. And the box sure. office was $9 million on it. So it, it did. They both these films were huge successes. and uh, But again, not necessarily well-received critically initially or by audiences, but whereas Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has become a cult classic over time, do you, you feel similarly, and I guess this is uh, fair to ask you now, uh, that that given time, Don't Worry Darling will receive a, a, a similar a similar fate? I, I absolutely think so. I think the further that we get away from all of the drama and sort of the secondhand stories and the backstage stuff with Olivia Wilde and, and her personal life and things like that, which I do, I do think for... Uh, a movie to sort of divorce itself from its director can be a little bit of a big task. But I think as soon as we get past all that and a year or two passes, it's really going to be like, people are going to look back and maybe realize that they've been a little bit unfairly critical to the movie. I'm not saying it's a perfect movie by any stretch, but the the vehement nature of some of the uh, criticisms of the film, I think we're we're going to look back with cooler heads no, and say, I, I, I think this might have been a little bit unwarranted. <laughs> I, I agree. I think there's some great performances in it. Uh, Florence Pugh, obviously, I thought was phenomenal in it. And I, I, I told you this before we started recording that I don't watch a lot of new films, so I'd had no idea who she was. But she's the first person you see in the film. You see her balancing a drink on her head with the other ladies there. And I'm like, I was immediately smitten. I was like, oh, my goodness, this woman is adorable. you know. And she's wonderful in the film, showing a full range of emotions similarly and i i knew chris pine from the star trek films <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as as a uh, as the you know the william shatner character and uh, i always thought i've always thought he was excellent and as a villain he's very good and and again you mentioned nick kroll nick kroll the role albeit small plays against type here he plays uh, you know kind of a somebody who's uh, quote unquote uh, drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid and uh, 
uh, is is at times nasty, uh, but does it very very well. It's very convincing. He is a true believer in this movie, and yes. I just seeing <laughs> seeing Nicole, who obviously, like I know from comedy, yes. being a big comedy fan myself, um, to see him play so smarmy, and the same with Chris Pine, where it's just like you look at Chris Pine, and he's like good guy, and he's handsome, and he's charming, yes. yes, and for him to go so dark yes. in this role, it, it was just. I, I thought the chemistry, there's only a couple of scenes that he shares with Florence Pugh. The chemistry between the two of them as adversaries, if there's one complaint I have about the movie, it's that I wanted to see a little bit more between the two of them. And sure. I'm hoping that maybe when the Blu-ray comes out, there's either a director's cut or a producer's cut, because it feels like some of their stuff might have been left on the cutting room floor. And and I want to I wanna see more of it. I, I I really just I like the the world that was built and I guess that's part of the reason why like it's so seductive to the people who are in it at the time as well. Absolutely. I think it was an effective movie. Great analysis. Great analysis. I wanted to play a clip. I I don't have a clip of of Don't Worry Darling. I looked at some of the trailers and they're all a lot of they're mostly visual, very visual obviously because mm-hmm. it's 2022, but I did find a a trailer for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls that I thought was quite good, and I wanted to play it for for listeners right now so they get a taste of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Here's a here's a clip from uh, 1970, a trailer for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and it's nothing that you really need to see. Basically, the trailer is just fast, super rapid edited clips of the film and uh, and uh, this monologue over it that I thought could probably be played and probably was played on radio in addition to theaters. Here it is. Check this out. I thought you guys would get a kick out of this. Recently. 20th Century Fox had two very heavy ideas. First, make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Second, get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. You'll meet three girls, young, beautiful, talented. A tight trio that was the heart and soul of a rock group. Life was sweet, man, but not enough. The whole world was out there just waiting. And the beat inside pushed them to where it's happening. Hollywood, USA. Happened all right. They got hooked on a non-stop merry-go-round where the only ticket you need is success. Be a winner, man, or forget it. When they made that first party, it was like too late. The whole thing was moving, reaching out, and they dug it. Whites, yellows, and reds were more than just colors, man. They were it. The magic dream films. The chicks were wild and groovy. The studs were cool and cruel. The eyes so warm, the smile so friendly. But watch the teeth. They bite deep. Faces, so many faces, calling, begging, help me, love me, save me, don't listen, if you hear them, you've had it, come on, open your mouth, wider, hear, taste, life, man, life, like it, hell no, tough, it's a one-way trip all the way down, (laughs) one little girl turns her back on truth and love, she'll have to make it with pain and eyes that cry rivers, the second finds her heart in the arms of another chick, don't look for evil in your brother's eye, the third bird finds her man, it's good, very good, but she almost blew it before she learned that simple truth. The boys are here too. One so sure that love was enough. It isn't. You gotta fight for it or it'll just get up and walk on out. Another cat's hungry. Bread and chicks. Make them pay. Love is free but sex isn't. Don't look back. You won't like the view. And what about you, man? What's your thing? You talk weird. What do all those words mean? Who are you? Don't look at me, man. You're not real. It's all here. Love, rape, murder, dope, grass, abortion, suicide. Something for everybody. Now hold it, man. Don't close your mind. This is what living is all about. Now and then, now and then. 
The people who make Beyond the Belly and the Dolls come alive are the largest introduction of fresh young talent ever presented in a major motion picture. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not a sequel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've been waiting for something new, waiting for a film to shake you into the freaked out, mind-blowing scene of right now, then come and see it, man, and find out why it's called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 20th Century Fox. I'm sold. <laughs> yes. A hundred times yes. Sarah, you, you had never seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. What did you think? I had never seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and further, I went back on my letterbox. I'd never seen a Russ Meyer movie before. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was my first in a lot of ways. I loved it. I loved it so much. It is is incredible to me that that was Roger Ebert's screenplay. Yes. (laughs) Knowing, like, the reverence that he has for the written word, like that that came from him was just mind-blowing i thought it was one of the grooviest pictures that i've ever seen the, the specifically the way the party scenes are edited it's almost like an episode of laughing where it was just like punchline 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 yes yes <laughs> like the inexplicable old lady and the hippies and like i just expected at any moment somebody was going to say sock it to me and it was really it, it was just I I had a ball watching this movie. Oh, I'm, I I'm really glad. did. That's great. That's great. I'm so glad you liked it. I, as you mentioned there, it, it was written by film critic Roger Ebert. You being a film critic yourself, have you ever considered writing a screenplay? Oh my god! I mean, of course. I first of all, hearing myself referred to as a film critic because I was only just, I, I was. I've always blogged, but this year was the first time I've ever had a byline in a publication. So that just meant the world to me. Oh my goodness! Uh, but. I have considered writing a screenplay, but not seriously enough to ever put pen to paper where it was just like, oh, well, maybe I could do this. And it's like, actually, maybe, maybe I just like watching movies. I think I'm, I'm just going to continue to watch movies, maybe get a little bit more appreciation for the craft. Um, I wonder if having done that screenplay after he was just a very young critic, if he ever, I mean, he obviously didn't but if you ever thought about going back to screenwriting for any reason when he was sort of more established because that's a fascinating question to me because it it seems like he had a good sense of humor about it after the fact yes because uh you you know more about this movie than i do having just come to it i know it's now more of a cult classic and has gone through that you know actually we this movie is a lot of fun and maybe it's not like reinventing the wheel or anything but it's a good watch um he always seemed to have a good sense of humor about it being considered bad or one of the worst movies of yes all time. yeah i do i do remember him in in and i can't remember if this was on a radio show or if it was on uh a late night talk show but somebody mentioning that um, well, Roger, you're you're quick to criticize, but what have you ever written? And then him mentioning, I wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and then trying to defend it in the conversation, defend the film, um, because somebody said, oh, I'd never even heard of that movie or whatever. But um, yeah, it's it's it is interesting. But you know, the writing is quite good. I mean, uh, Z Man's lines are like straight out of Shakespeare. You know, obviously oh he pulled from God. the best. <laughs> 
So Z-Man's final descent into madness. Yes. Like right before Z-Man goes on the killing spree and it's something like, by the end of the night, you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. Or yes, like that. that's it. That's the line. Very oh good. my God. It was like, you know, it was like a cheer moment. I was like, yeah. It, like, <laughs> it's so, it's so crazy, you know, in, 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 in researching it and we're watching it again this time for me and, and, uh, I'd never put the connection together, and it may be because of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Am I getting that title right? That the, the last Tarantino film, you know, where the the Tate LaBianca murders, and and that I'm sure influenced the the end sequence in this film because that happened, you know, I think what a year or two years prior, and that was all yeah. over the news. And I'd never put that together, and I was like, oh, of course, you know, that that's obviously a, an influence there. But uh, this is this is. Uh, this was so much fun. Thank you so, so much for talking with me, Sarah. I wanted to ask you one last question. I, I, I know that you said this is one, I'm sorry, don't worry, darling, one of your favorite films of 2022. Uh, could could you at all share with us perhaps what, what were some of the other films that you, you've, you've loved this year? I should say so far as the year isn't over, but are there other ones that are on your list of your favorites? Oh my goodness. I would be happy to. Um, so my favorite movie that I've seen so far this year uh, that's come out in 2022 is Crimes of the Future. Uh, oh, David Cronenberg's yes, latest. Yes, I haven't I seen it. that was a really nice return to form for David Cronenberg. It's been so long since he's done anything that's been explicitly body horror. The movies that he's done in between have been really good. Like uh, Dangerous Method was good. History of Violence obviously was really good. Yes. Eastern Promises. But him working with Vigo Mortensen in his horror mode, um, where also he's got this really fantastic dry wit about him that's satirizing um, not only like climate change and and climate activism, but also performance art. Um, I thought was fascinating, and for a um, filmmaker who's got you know fifty years of history behind him, for him to do something that still feels really fresh and really innovative and really like genre bending, rule bending, um, felt really really great. Um, conversely, when we're going like from popular, like from sort of indie movies to more popular media, uh, Top Gun Maverick was fucking fantastic. Pardon my language, but I have to like, I I have to like hit the nail on the head on this. There is a reason why that movie played through the entire summer. It rules. It rules. Tom Cruise is our last and frankly best movie star right now and i will watch him pilot a plane and jump off a building and be the oldest top gun in the world um for as long as he chooses to make these movies i think he was really wonderful great endorsements thank you so so much for that I, i really appreciate it sarah and i really appreciate you talking with me today this has been so so much fun and and what we're gonna do now is hand things over to our friend Rachel from Des Moines with the Chart Chat. Take it away, Rachel. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone who listened last week. I want to send special get well soon wishes to Jeffrey and thank him for sharing the toothpaste commercial that turned Linda Ronstadt's Get Closer into Get Close Up. For Tavy and other fans of learning the sources of ad jingles, we have one coming up in the segment this week. On Twitter, I had some good discussion going with some Rush fans about why it might be that New World Man was their only top 40 single, and it seemed like a lot of factors and some things I had not considered, but uh, yeah, some great thoughts there. 
for our 70s chart this week. We're in November 7th of 1970. This is our first 1970 chart since July. Starting off at number 76, we have traffic with empty pages. This would get a couple more notches higher to 74. And this is their first single off of their fourth album, John Barleycorn Must Die. And I read that this hit number five on the album's chart and it went gold. And Traffic had broken up in 68, and then uh, Steve Winwood uh, was working on his first solo album, but it sort of morphed into becoming a Traffic reunion, albeit without Dave Mason, and becoming an album under that name. So the other band members at the time were Jim Capaldi and Chris Wood. And I want to say that my tra- love for Traffic is completely separate from my love of Steve Winwood. They seem like they're just two different compartments in my mind. But this is uh, one that my dad had on vinyl. I can remember him listening to it. Just some good stuff from Traffic. At number 65 is the group Elephant's Memory with their song Mongoose. This would make it to number 50. If I could only talk about one song from this chart, it would absolutely be this one. I have loved it ever since I first ran across it in my chart listening. And if you've heard of the group Elephant's Memory, it's probably for their association with uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And they were their backing band from late 71 till 73. They had released three albums of their own prior to that. And then they kept recording in different combinations after their time with John and Yoko. And Mongoose is telling about, you know, the animal that attacks cobras or, you know, help in the story, in the song, it kind of is trying to help humans against cobras. Just a great groove on this one. Great sound. So this song, like I say, hit number 50, but it was a regional hit in Chicago and Pittsburgh. At number 35, we have Share the Land by The Guess Who. This will make it to number 10. And this is off of their album of the same name, which was their seventh. And it was the second single off of that one, following Hand Me Down World. And this song I first came to know about from the Freedom Rock compilation. To me, the lyrics on this one seem very sincere, much more than that 10 Years After song we talked about a couple weeks ago. You can actually believe that they, they wish to share the land with people. At number 33, uh, another group that was on Freedom Rock, Canned Heat, uh, and their song Let's Work Together. Let's make it to number 26. And you may know Canned Heat from their song Going Up the Country or their appearance at Woodstock. This song was written by Wilbert Harrison as Let's Stick Together, and then it was kind of reworked with the same music and arrangement but different lyrics into Let's Work Together. And I feel like I can remember seeing this in an ad. I looked up on, online, I saw it used in a Target ad maybe using some others besides that. Not to gross anybody out, but the meaning of Canned Heat, uh, it came from a song called The Canned Heat Blues, which is about being an alcoholic so desperate that you turn to drinking the denatured alcohol in sterno cans. And I worked in catering for a time in my 20s, and we used a lot of those sterno cans to light shaving dishes, you know, keep shaving dishes warm. And it's just like, you would have to be pretty desperate to drink drink that. But I really like this song. Um, they have a different vocalist from Going Up the Country, so a little bit of a different sound. In addition to that, the overall sound is much heavier, too. At number 27, we have Look What They've Done to My Song Ma by the new singer, New Seekers. And I included this one because, uh, again, this was reworked in the 80s and turned into an ad for oatmeal crisp cereal look what they've done to my oatmeal that was how i first encountered it and it's of all the songs that could be turned into commercials this one i wouldn't it's not necessarily against song commercialization but it's definitely of the artists speaking against you know how they're controlled or molded by the music biz 
So kind of a little bit of irony there. Uh, the New Seekers are a vocal group from the UK, and they did a lot of covers. They're known for the uh, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was from a Coke commercial. Uh, but they're also, they sang the theme from Free to Be You and Me, the Marlo Thomas special, uh, beloved by many. The original was written by Melanie, uh, Melanie Safka. Her version was the B-side of her single, Ruby Tuesday. At number 21, it was Express Yourself by Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. This would make it to number 12. Uh, this is from the album of the same name. It was nominated for a Grammy. And it was sampled by NWA from the song also called Express Yourself. Finally from the 70s this week, we have Green Eyed Lady by the group Sugarloaf. This is at number 4. It would go on to hit number 3. And Sugarloaf was founded by Jerry Corbetta from Denver, Colorado. Um, I feel people may know this song, but I just, maybe you have heard it, but you didn't know who it was by. And the first time I encountered this that I can recall was a classmate in high school showed a skiing or snowboarding VHS in class. I don't know what the justification for that was, but it, I remember it being a pretty cool video. Turning to the 80s, this week we're in 1984, uh, the week of November 17th. And so like I always say, 1984, super strong. Starting off at number 87, we have The Fix with two X's and their song Sunshine in the Shade. So go on to hit number 69. And uh, this is off of the third single off of their album Phantoms. And The Fix, if you know them, they're mostly, they have many singles. I think their signature hit is probably One Thing Leads to Another. And this has the same cool sound as that one. Very distinctive, I would say. And just happened to stumble upon it this week and really enjoyed it. Wanted to include it. At number 81 is a song by Rick Springfield called Bruce. It'll go on to hit number 27. And this has kind of an odd story behind it. This was a song he wrote and recorded about being confused with Bruce Springsteen as Rick Springfield. Um, and it was on an album he recorded in 78, which was not released until 84 after he had become much more popular. If I was him, I might feel a little embarrassed about this song coming out. I don't know, but... Um, as of note, he had single, his singles were at 83, 82, and 81 on the chart this week, and the other two were from that Hard to Hold soundtrack. At uh, number 66, we have a song called Call to the Heart by Giuffria. This will make it to number 15, and the band was fronted by Greg Giuffria from the band Angel. And I had never heard of this song until Spotify. I came upon it on some power ballad compilation, but I really like it, and it's another one of those... You know, this fits right in with that sound. I don't know why this one was not more popular or didn't kind of carry on as, you know, in that power ballad canon that we all know. This was their only top 40 hit, and the band is still together today, albeit without Greg. So I don't know how that exactly shook out. At number 41, we have Toto with Stranger in Town. And this would make it to number 30. This is the first single off of their first fifth album, Isolation. And it was the follow-up to their Smash album Toto 4. So this is you know, the same year that they had their Dune soundtrack. That was 84. And not much to say about this one. Just a lesser-known Toto song. But has a really cool sound. Very up-tempo. At number 40 is Rebby Jackson with her song Centipede. 
in a weird parallel, as I said, if I could only talk about one song from 70, it would have been Mongoose. If I could only talk about one song off this 84 chart, it would be Centipede, because I really love it. The lyrics are really nonsensical, but I think that's what makes me like it even more, in addition to the cool sound and the, the beat and her vocals. Uh, Rebby Jackson is the oldest Jackson sibling, and the song was written and produced by Michael, and he did backing vocals on it along with the duo The Weather Girls, which I thought was cool. And Centipede made it to number 24. I have no idea if it's based on the video game or not. Maybe just a coincidence. At number 31, we have Hello Again by The Cars. This will make it to number 20. And this is off of their fifth album, Heartbeat City. It was the fourth single off of that album. And I think it kind of gets overshadowed by some of the other singles on that one just because they were so huge. Yeah, just another, again, kind of like the Toto song, just a lesser known one from them. Wanted to feature it. And I read that the video was directed by Andy Warhol. Finally, from the 80s this week, at number 20 is I Can't Hold Back by Survivor. This will make it to number 13. And this is just more of that AOR cheese that we love from Survivor. This is the first single from their album Vital Signs that I've talked about before. That was their first album with vocalist Jimmy Jameson. And the song has a, has a features a pre-chorus, has a really interesting arrangement, and keeps it intriguing. There's at least one more Survivor song that I'm going to want to feature for you guys. I'm hoping that comes up soon. I hope we can get another 81 chart soon. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Interesting and excellent as always. This has been episode 255 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Sarah LaHue. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.